and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 83, recorded on December 9th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And I think we all did a collective double take this week when we heard about our first story, and that is Microsoft Edge moving to a Chromium base. Well, Microsoft loves Linux and open source, so it just totally makes sense that they're going to base their browser on an open source base, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is, to me, this is one of the biggest conceits in recent tech history. And I never expected Microsoft to be this willing to self-analyze and go, where are we losing and give up? on Internet Explorer slash Edge. Uh, I mean, this is a 20-year legacy. and Or another way to phrase this in corporate speak, this is a 20-year investment that they fought for hard. And having a, having a strategic stake in the web via an engine is excessively valuable for these companies. It's just ridiculous. Like, it's a, it's, it used to be kind of the game. And so to see Microsoft, even, even though clearly Edge was not, going to be a popular browser, even with that still, that obvious evidence to actually see them make this move, uh, I don't know what to do with that. That's that's so crazy. At this point, if you were to come on next week and say they're shutting down Bing, I'd be like, oh yeah, well, that's what Microsoft's doing now. They're doing that kind of thing now. <laughs> yeah. But if you think about it, do they really care what browser engine is talking to the servers running on Azure? Not really. And that's where they're making their money. And that's where they seem to be heading, doubling down on Azure. Hmm. Maybe. I'm not going to say I believe this is a, a pure Azure play here, as so many other things seem to be. Um, because one of the one of the little nuances about this story that people aren't talking a lot about is there's a bunch of progressive web applications and other applications that are based around the Edge engine selling in the Windows Store right now. And those are going to continue to use that rendering engine even after the Chromium switch has happened. Those applications being sold through the store, still using Edge under the hood, the old Edge engine. So that's kind of a, that's an interesting thing because a lot of those PWA apps are connecting to Azure services. So I'm not sure this is a pure Azure play, but they will be trying to leverage control but just through the more modern method of doing so, they write on their post about this. As part of this, we intend to become a significant contributor to the Chromium project in a way that can make not just Microsoft Edge, but other browsers as well, better on both PCs and other devices. And we've begun making contributions to the Chromium project to help move browsing forward on new ARM-based Windows devices. That's, they're already contributing code upstream for that purpose. And in here, they say, their goal is to embrace this open-source, established model of providing meaningful contributions that make it a better browser on Windows by contributing that upstream. And the heavy, heavy, heavy implication here is this is about making electron-based applications Totally kick ass on Windows. I'm pretty sure I know what this is in service of. A much bigger, longer term goal, but I'm going to save that prediction for our episode at the end of the year. But this is about, I'll just say short term, this is about making Electron apps the best on Windows. In fact, there's an implication in here 
that you may see a bit of a consolidated electron runtime. That when electron apps run on Windows, they sort of use this integrated, centralized runtime instead of launching a dedicated runtime for each electron app. Well, it will be baked into Windows 10, won't it? Like Edge is currently. So that would kind of make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Hadn't thought about that. Yeah. They say they'll do it over time, they'll make the change under the hood. So most end users won't even be aware this happened. And then they say they'll do a frequent release cadence where they'll just start pushing updates to Edge in the background kind of aggressively like the Chrome browser does itself. And they plan to release a version of Edge for the Mac as well that will be running on the Chromium. Or really, it's the Blink rendering engine and the V8 JavaScript engine. Yeah. So it's really, I think it's about web apps and it's about Electron. And I think it's about being just on a winning team, perhaps. Uh, But it's a massive, massive win for Google. Well, they didn't go so far as to say that it'd be available for Linux, but there was a slight implication there. I can't wait to install it on Linux and review it. (laughs) Well, look at at some of their applications they release now that are Electron-based, like Visual Studio Code. This is going to be something that has to be available for Linux if those applications are going to be using this technology. Yeah, I suppose so. Even if we're not using it directly, we'll end up using it um, well, not we, but the people who are using those Electron apps, yeah. Right, keep in mind also Skype, Electron app. Yeah, although I try not to use that if at all <laughs> possible, or I might have to use it this week, possibly. Ugh, makes me shudder. But Mozilla are not very um, happy about this, are they? No. <laughs> Surprisingly no. enough. Yeah, shocker there, eh? Um, th- they come in swinging. This is the opening sentence. And I quote, Microsoft is officially giving up on an independent shared platform for the internet. By adopting Chromium, Microsoft hands over control of even more of online life to Google. Dang. (laughs) That's the opening sentence. (laughs) Yeah, they're not messing about at all, are they? But they do have a point that now it's a two-horse race, whereas before it was something of a three-horse race. We like to think as you know, IT people that no one is actually using Edge, but it's still the default browser on most Windows installations, at least outside of Europe. And people tend to use the defaults, and Windows 10 has got this huge market share. So there must be a lot of people using Edge as it stands. And so now after this change happens, there'll only be two horses in the race. And that, I I don't know, is that good for Mozilla? Probably not really, because it means that people are just not really going to test things outside of Chromium and Chrome. Uh, This is uh, really, to me, two different ways to look at the same problem. Because what you said is absolutely true, and I think that's Mozilla's perspective. And they've been trying to paint that picture for ages now. There's also the reality of the situation. Like if we zoom out and we look at the whole browser market, Edge, sure, you know, it's the default on Windows 10. And I bet you a pretty sizable percentage of Windows 10 users that are average users keep that. Probably not most in our audience, but maybe even some in our audience. No, no judgment if you do. But Windows 10 is just an itty bitty baby drop in the ocean compared to the Android and iPhone market. And then you combine all of the Windows machines that are using Chrome, all the Macs and Linux boxes that are using Chrome. WebKit and Blink just have a massive, impenetrable market share. And I think Microsoft very wisely has sussed that out. And instead, they're doing something that really only Microsoft can. What, I mean, what other company has enough weight, 
has enough gravitas and experience to move the needle in the direction of a project like Chromium other than Microsoft. Google is such a massive stakeholder in this project for obvious reasons that really anyone's contributions besides somebody like Microsoft would be a drop in the bucket. But And I'm reading from the Microsoft GitHub page here. They have a massive plan for their contributions to this project. They have a whole range of things they're planning to upstream that will make considerable adjustments to the code base of this web browser. And when you look at when Microsoft started to get involved in the Linux kernel for virtualization compatibility, their contribution on that, on that scale of top contributors exploded. They can take that same approach and they can apply that to Chromium. And I'm really curious to see where this goes because if you look at the reality of the market, it's really a WebKit horse race. Um, congratulations to the team that initially put KHTML together because you created something that is going to be a standard on the web for a very long time now. So congratulations to the KHTML team because this is really your legacy. And I, I think this is humbling to see an open source project like this have a massive impact on the web. And if you look at the way open source has shaped the web from the top to the bottom, it might not be Mozilla's story, but it's still free software and open source's story. And if Microsoft can make a dent, if they can impact or move the needle by contributing to Chromium, then they're going to make a direct contribution and they're going to improve the real market leader. And I, I plead for anyone to run Firefox, that it works for them, consider running Firefox, because at least then you can help make somewhat of a market um, signal for that web browser. But I think Microsoft's looking at the reality of the situation and how they can most effectively apply some leverage, and this is it. And I, I would argue they may be one of the best companies positioned to actually pull this off. So do you think you'd give it a try if they released Edge for Linux? Yeah, I suppose I'd have to just kick the tires. I don't know if I'd switch, though. <laughs> That'd be a little, I'd feel a little weird, Joe. I don't think I'd install it on my main machine, put it that way, just on my test box. Oh, skeptical. <laughs> yeah, well, because it's not going to be open source, is it? Well, I think it will. Be. It might be, and I might trust it more than I trust Google Chrome. I don't know about the Chromium project itself, though. Ah, I'd try it, but I don't think I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, Chromium and WebKit and Blink are very much a standard for browsing the web, but most of the sites that people will be looking at are powered by WordPress, or at least 30% of them. Yeah, it's, it is a huge success story in itself. And version 5.0 came out this week. I think the big headline feature is the new block-based editor. They call it a first step towards an exciting future. But the new block-based editor uh, it allows you to arrange content um, but doesn't really affect – don't think of it as affecting the way the page – renders or looks, but it's more about giving creators a blank canvas where they can like draw a box and say this media element goes here or make these fonts in this area fancy and you do it via this block concept and they have a bunch of blocks you can just drop in there and then you're good to go. I've tried this out and I'm not convinced really. Mm -hmm. I think that if I'd never used WordPress before, it would be a better experience than I have got used to. But Having already developed a workflow, this has somewhat just thrown that out of the window. There is a plugin which can bring you the old functionality back, the old editor, but I don't like installing plugins if <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have to because yeah. it's just more attack surface and stuff. And that only works until 2021, and then they're dropping compatibility for that plugin. Yeah, so I think I'm just going to have to get used to this and just start rolling with it. It's radically different, though. 
Um, I was pretty surprised. I mean, minimalist would be one way to put it. Uh, it's very minimal. And you kind of start with a blank canvas and then and then build the blocks together and do your post. And I bet you if you could work with templates and systems like that, you know, create your own blocks, you could essentially replicate the workflow you have with the classic design. Um, but I agree. As a long, long, long time WordPress user, jarring and surprising is how I would describe the new UI. Um, but I I had the same exact thought you had. It was like, okay, well, I could totally see if this is the first time I ever sat down to use WordPress. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's their thinking. Like, we've got 30% of the web, but what about the next 30%? You know, that's a pretty common line of thinking for these uh, uh, ambitious groups like this. But the other thing about 5.0, besides the new UI, is there's some very important security fixes in here. They're not emphasizing those very much, but having followed this for TechSnap recently, there's some pretty important security fixes in 5.0 So it's worth the upgrade, but with all these big ones, you know, you can always try it out before you make the upgrade throw it up on a VPS for a bit and kick the tires. And they have also some ones online you can try out. Well, something else I think I've heard you talk about running on a VPS is MB. Yeah, the open source community's answer to Plex, a media streaming system that automatically indexes all your files. It retrieves all the metadata from the various information services. It displays them nicely in a web UI or on apps on Android or iOS. And it even, you know, keeps track of what you've watched, gets trailers, you know, the things you expect from Plex. This sounds like a great open source project. Yeah, so I went all in. I set myself up a droplet, got some big uh, attached storage, and uh, I sync files up there. And this week, sort of sneaky too, because I, obviously who wants to really emphasize this? But in a new release, it is revealed that MB is essentially switching to a closed source core model with other bits that are open source. A proprietary core with open source additions. <sighs> the nerd rage was strong on GitHub, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, the comments are brutal. And I'm pretty upset too. This was the major differentiator between this and Plex. Well, what put me off Plex, and I think puts a lot of people off, is that you have to log in. You have to have an account, don't you? I think there are maybe some workarounds, but the standard workflow is that you have to have this account with them, whereas MB was totally self-hosted. Yeah, there are ways on Plex, like you said, though, to get around that. Yeah, that's true, but I think that MB will still continue to be popular because it is totally independent. You know, you can just run it yourself, even if it's proprietary, because, you know, it's like things like Servio that's totally proprietary, but no one cares, or very few people outside of the Linux and open source world care, as long as it works well. So I don't think it's really going to harm their adoption, is it? I mean, I know they've got this nagware aspect of it, which has that annoyed you then? The Nagware aspect would be extremely annoying if I hadn't been a an MB Premium subscriber for a while now. I threw in some money on like a yearly plan just to try to keep them around to try to prevent something like this from happening because this to me was such a great solution. You think about it, you know, you can have you can have a private collection of TV and movies for your kids. And, you know, if maybe your kids are split between two homes, they can still watch the same stuff, but you can also share it with friends and family. And when I'm traveling, it's just so great. And it just was so perfect. And it's so disappointing to see this. And uh, I actually, I'm, I'm going to cancel my premium membership. I have, I have no need for this. And I guess I would just say this. Their timing sucks because Plex, I feel like, has recently taken their eye off the ball. It was originally a fork of XBMC. And it just was better Xbox Media Center XBMC it's now known as Cody. It was just great at that. 
But now they've gotten into trying to aggregate news, and they're even trying to be like a podcast platform, and they're trying to do all this extra stuff outside of just streaming my damn shows. Um, and so it would be MB's game to gain there, but not with this move. I think it's going to slow that. Yeah, and this seems to be all about that nagging screen because people could fork it before and were forking it and removing that aspect of it, the the nag, and they just don't want that to happen because that damages their business model. They want you to be annoyed enough to subscribe to the premium service, and now there's no way to change that code and remove that. So that's clearly the crux of this. I think I smell a fork coming. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of talk about that, but their attitude in GitHub as well was like, yeah, good luck with that, which is, um, mm, that's not going to win you any friends, is it? (laughs) This is way harder than you know. Good luck. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, Linus has been winning over some friends. His emails have been much nicer with uh, no swearing so far. And it looks like this new attitude has gotten us a reasonable compromise on what could have been a performance nightmare. Yeah, in this upcoming 420 release, they're going to make the Spectre Variant 2 mitigations optional on a per-application basis. This is really clever because the performance hit on these most recent fixes were like nearly 50% performance hit. And there's just so many applications that may potentially never need this protection. So now, processes can decide to use it via a system call. And then... If the application, say maybe it's a particularly secure application, knows it needs that protection, it gets it. But they can decide to take their chances or not, and thus decide to take the performance penalty or not. This is such a clever solution to the problem, isn't it? It needed to happen. It's taken, what, basically a year for them to solve this problem. But hopefully this is going to be the solution that we've all been waiting for. It seems like the right compromise, at least. And we got to keep in mind, at this point, there's not really any known exploits on any of these attack vectors in the wild. There has been theoretical proof, but there's nothing in the wild. So there's there's nothing that we need to protect against currently. And so taking, in some work cases, a 50% performance hit, especially on multiprocessor systems and systems using hyperthreading, which is a lot of systems these days, uh, I think this is very wise. Well, just because there's no public exploits using this doesn't necessarily mean that the three-letter agencies don't have them. But uh, let's not get all tinfoil hat, shall we? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, instead, let's talk about some surprising news, and that was NVIDIA open-sourcing physics. This is surprising, but it's very welcome that something that is potentially very useful to a lot more than just gaming is being released by NVIDIA. But there is a bit of a caveat, isn't there, that you do kind of need to use it in conjunction with NVIDIA hardware. Yeah, and I don't see that likely changing anytime soon. I suppose if it's open source, it's possible, or or maybe some shims could be created. But I, I don't want that to detract from what this is, because this, again, is like a 10-year investment by a company, and that really means a lot. And there is direct applications for physics outside of gaming, AI research, Uh, It's particularly useful for self-driving car modeling in game development. It helps with creating unique, real-life-liking animations for, like, background characters. So there's ways that lots of games could be improved. But in high-performance computing, which might be one of the more important ones, things like simulations are being done, and being able to take advantage of the GPUs in better ways could make scientific discovery happened faster. Like, you really can't undersell this. And they're making it available this week. It's already available as a BSD3 licensed open source project. What do you make of that license choice then? 
that means that it can be baked into proprietary stuff and the changes and improvements won't be then shared. I wonder why they did that rather than going a copyleft route. I'm not sure. It's it's hard to say. You know, we can't read their minds. And boy, that would be useful. But when you read what they have released publicly, they talk about it in a way that they've come to this realization that they've developed something that's foundationally important to the future of research. And they write, we've decided to provide it to the world in an open source fashion. Like they came to this realization, holy crap, we've created something really great here. And hey, you know, it does kind of require our video cards anyways. So let's just open source this um, because maybe we can become like the thought leader in this area. We can become the dominating platform for this type of work. And so there is that huge potential long-term benefit for them. And benefit for all of us. Maybe it won't just be Phoenix where you can get a Johnny Cab soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we may see uh, physics-assisted uh, projects taking off all around the world, or we may never really hear much about it because it's just going to be one of those foundational, low-level things that does all the heavy lifting. Uh, but let's move on with our last story. bit of good news. We just recently covered that Valve was discontinuing the Steam Link hardware, but they appear to already be making good on that Steam Link as an app strategy. Yeah, now there is a deb available for the Raspberry Pi, at least for the Raspberry Pi 3B and 3B+. So I have to ask, have you had a chance to check this out? No, but I did have a conversation with Popey, who gave it a go, and it sounds like it's pretty legit. And uh, you got to figure, this is probably the first step in what is going to be, I hope, a Netflix-like strategy for the Steam Link app. When when Roku started, it was known as the Netflix box. It was the Netflix box, and then it became the Roku. And now everything is a Netflix box. Every television, every microwave, every set-top box, it has to ship with a Netflix app. If Valve could achieve something similar to this strategy, even if it wasn't nearly as, as comprehensive as Netflix's, but if they could just get on maybe the NVIDIA Shield, if they could get on a Roku, for example, because this right here proves it out. If you can make it run on a Raspberry Pi, you can probably get it running on just nearly any of these set-top boxes if they get the manufacturer on board. And that would be a superior strategy than making hardware because, to be honest— I think a lot of us are getting burned out on buying these boxes that we hook up to our televisions and burning another HDMI port. If you could instead get the Steam Link app on something already hooked up to your TV, that's a huge win. Yeah, well, that definitely seems to be the strategy they're going for here. But they've had a bit of a checkered history with the hardware that they've sold, haven't they? These uh, Steam boxes that just seem to disappear. So who knows with Valve? They seem to throw a lot of stuff at the wall, and maybe this will stick. Yeah, you are right about that. They sometimes come up with great strategies, and then the execution seems to sort of fumble. Well, I'll be happy if they just get it for the NVIDIA Shield. Although, I, every time we talk about this, I'm reminded about the Moonlight Project. So if you're interested in setting up Steam streaming uh, with a free and open source project, go check out the Moonlight Project. We've covered it before on Linux Unplugged. But that's it for this week. I want to mention we have some great end-of-year shows planned, including the wrap-up of the major stories of the year. And Joe put together a heck of a list, and we just double-checked it. We're checking our list. Um, and uh, there are some massive developments that are on there. I can't believe how big this year was. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes so you can get the regular shows and the end-of-year specials. Yeah, and you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. 
And don't forget about Linux Fest Northwest, April 26th through the 28th, 2019, at the Bellingham Technical College. It is the 20th year of Linux Fest Northwest. They have some big plans, and Jupiter Broadcasting has massive plans, including a live Linux Action News recorded there at the show. So go check out Linux Fest Northwest if you want to go. We'd love to see you there, April 26th through the 28th. Yeah, it's going to be good fun. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.